Jonathan Swift was born in 1667 in Dublin in what was then the Kingdom of Ireland, which was ruled by the King of England. His mother was Irish, but his father was English, so he was half Irish. He moved to Cumberland in England when he was a year old, but then he went back to Ireland when he was three. He later attended Trinity College in Dublin, starting there in 1682, and Trinity College is home to the Long Room, which is a very impressive-looking space of which you maybe have seen pictures. It's the largest single-chamber library in the world. It's a single room that's 65 meters, or about 213 feet in length. Today it has 6 million volumes, and it was built between 1712 and 1732, so 30 to 50 years after Swift was a student there. But it's worth looking up pictures of it. The long room at Trinity College in Dublin. And when he was a student there, in 1688, the events that are today called the Glorious Revolution broke out. And remember what's been going on in England throughout the 17th century. You have the civil wars between 1639 and 1653, the execution of Charles I in 1649, the protectorate, mostly under Cromwell, from 1653, and then he dies in 1658. Then you have the Stuart Restoration in 1660, which brings back the monarchy under Charles II. We went over all that in a bit more detail in the episode dealing with John Milton. And now in 1688, we have what's essentially an invasion and a coup. Some of the background is that James II, the king, who was a Catholic who had Protestant support, became king in February of 1685. And in June of 1688... His wife gave birth to a son, which meant the Protestant, his daughter Mary II, was no longer heir to the throne, and that the new heir was a Catholic. And some people were not happy with this. And William III, who was the Prince of Orange and was also married to Mary II, William III was also the nephew of James II. So James II was the father of Mary and the uncle of William, so that means Mary and William were cousins, and they were also married, which was relatively common among royalty at the time. And James II has another son, meaning that Mary is no longer heir to the throne, and that a Catholic is. And so on November 5th, 1688, William III lands at the English port of Brixham with a Dutch army, and the reign of James II is ended on December 23rd. He's deposed, he's replaced by his daughter Mary II, and her husband William III. All of that is going on while Swift is a student in Dublin, and as a result of the instability that it caused, he left Ireland and went to England in the same year. And in England, his mother helped him to get a job as the secretary and personal assistant of Sir William Temple, who was an English diplomat and is today best known as the driving force behind the Triple Alliance of 1668. You'll notice that's 20 years before the time we're talking about now. The revolution was in 1688. This alliance was in 1668. It was a defensive alliance signed by England, the Swedish Empire, and the Dutch Republic in response to the occupation by France of the Spanish Netherlands and Franche-Comte, which is today a region of eastern France, but at the time was controlled by Spain. And while neither Spain nor Emperor Leopold of Hungary, Bohemia, and Croatia were not signatories to the Triple Alliance of 1668. They were 
closely involved in the negotiations for it. So William Temple was the English diplomat who was a major architect of that alliance. And at the time when Swift started to work for him, he had retired from his public service to a great extent and was living on his country estate. Though he must have still had some involvement with government because within three years, he had introduced Swift to William III. Again, this is the Prince of Orange who had invaded England and become its king, as well as King of Ireland and Scotland as a result. And Temple also had occasion to send Swift to London at one point to urge the new king to agree to a bill that would make parliamentary elections be held every three years. So this was apparently some of Swift's early involvement in government. He also became ordained as a priest in the Church of Ireland, and in 1702, when Swift was about 35 years old, he received his degree as a Doctor of Divinity from Trinity College. He supported the revolution, which is not that surprising because of his proximity to the king. Remember that Swift would have been about 21 years old in 1688 when... James II was deposed, and he would have met William III at some time after that in his mid-20s. And when you're in your 20s, just about anything that happens to you, certainly something major like having a reason to meet with a king on official business is likely to shape your worldview a lot. So early in life, he was a Whig or a parliamentarian, what we might today call a liberal. He later joined the Tories, the conservatives, because he viewed them as being more receptive to things that he wanted for Ireland. He was then involved in politics and doing political writing for a long time, but he eventually fell out of favor with Queen Anne because she deemed, like many people at the time, a piece of his writing called A Tale of a Tub to be blasphemous. And that piece of writing is a satire about three brothers who represent the Catholic and Anglican churches and the English dissenters. And a lot of people considered it blasphemous because it apparently makes light of religion. And on top of that, Swift also wrote something called the Windsor Prophecy, in which he apparently advised the queen on which of her bedchamber ladies he should trust. And she didn't like that. And she apparently did everything in her power to make sure that he didn't get a good position anywhere. And he did get a position, but it wasn't a very good one. And the queen didn't even want him to get that. So he had effectively fallen out of favor. So when the Whigs got back into power, he returned to Ireland in disappointment. But that was where he wrote some of his most important writings on Irish politics that have since earned him the status of being an Irish patriot, according to some. And as a result of that writing, his printer, Edward Waters, was convicted in 1720 of seditious libel. But four years later, a grand jury refused to find that the relevant writing of Swift's, in this case the Drapier's letters, were seditious. So he got some heat from the government, but it didn't burn him. And it was also during that time that Swift started to write what he's best known for, which is Gulliver's Travels, much of which is reflections on his political experience up to that point. Swift was about 59 years old when he finished it, and it's worth noting that Dante was about 56 when he completed The Divine Comedy, and that book also reflects Dante's political career in certain ways and was written basically after Dante had been sufficiently defeated politically. And Swift's Gulliver's Travels was similarly written after something of a political fall and also reflects some of his political experience. Alexander Pope, a major poet with whom Swift was lifelong friends and some other friends of his, helped Swift to publish Gulliver's Travels. Initially, it was published anonymously in November of 1726. And I note the month because it had 
three more printings in the same year, and November is toward the end of the year, so it very quickly had three more printings. And in the following year, 1727, it had a fourth English printing, as well as translations into French, German, and Dutch, and pirated printings in Ireland. Jonathan Swift died in 1745 in Dublin, the city of his birth, and he wrote a lot. One collection of his prose works comprises 14 volumes. An edition of his complete poetry is 953 pages long, and an edition of his correspondence, his letters, is three volumes. He's best known for Gulliver's Travels, as we've mentioned, also A Modest Proposal, we'll look at that a little bit, The Battle of the Books, A Tale of a Tub, and An Argument Against Abolishing Christianity, to name a few. But we can get into some passages now from the writing of Jonathan Swift, and the first passage I'm going to read is the entirety of a short bit of writing called Meditation on a Broomstick. And here he reflects on how man resembles a broomstick. Swift writes, quote, This single stick, which you now behold ingloriously lying in that neglected corner, I once knew in a flourishing state in a forest. It was full of sap, full of leaves, and full of boughs. But now in vain does the busy art of man pretend to vie with nature by tying that withered bundle of twigs to its sapless trunk. It is now at best but the reverse of what it was, a tree turned upside down, the branches on the earth, and the root in the air. It is now handled by every dirty wench condemned to do her drudgery and by a capricious kind of fate destined to make other things clean and be nasty itself. At length, worn to the stumps in the service of the maids, it is either thrown out of doors or condemned to the last use of kindling a fire. When I beheld this, I sighed and said within myself, Surely mortal man is a broomstick. Nature sent him into the world strong and lusty, in a thriving condition, wearing his own hair on his head, the proper branches of this reasoning vegetable, till the axe of intemperance has lopped off his green boughs and left him with a withered trunk. He then flies to art and puts on a periwig, valuing himself upon an unnatural bundle of hairs, all covered with powder, that never grew on his head. But now should this our broomstick pretend to enter the scene proud of those birchen spoils it never bore and all covered with dust through the sweepings of the finest lady's chamber, we should be apt to ridicule and despise its vanity, partial judges that we are of our own excellencies and other men's defaults. But a broomstick, perhaps you will say, is an emblem of a tree standing on its head. And pray, what is a man but a topsy-turvy creature, his animal faculties perpetually mounted on his rational, his head where his heels should be groveling on the earth? And yet, with all his faults, he sets up to be a universal reformer and corrector of abuses, a remover of grievances, rakes into every slut's corner of nature, bringing hidden corruptions to the light, and raising a mighty dust where there was none before, sharing deeply all the while in the very same pollutions he pretends to sweep away. His last days are spent in slavery to women, and generally the least deserving, till, worn to the stumps, like his brother Bessem, he is either kicked out of doors or made use of to kindle flames for others to warm themselves by, end quote. And this vision of man as being something that's naturally powerful and beautiful and capable in itself, and is then converted into something else that's upside down and dirty in certain ways and purports to sweep things away when it really doesn't, is maybe in a sense true in that we are constrained in certain ways, but I'm always brought back to how man without training, without cultivation, is some kind of wild animal. That if you leave a human in the woods, assuming, for example, that the baby wouldn't just get eaten, but a young kid lives in the woods, grows up in the woods, without any other human interaction, you would not end up with a great artist or a great inventor or a great scientist. You'd end up with 
essentially a wild animal that had the physical form of a human. What lets humans be what they are is cultivation, essentially by other humans, being trained, being taught, inheriting the collective knowledge of past generations in one way or another. This ability to accumulate knowledge and pass it on is one of the major things that differentiates humans. So the analogy of taking a tree and flipping it over and cutting it down and killing it and making it into a broomstick is imperfect in that way. It's not as if humans are naturally enormous and majestic and productive like trees are, and we mess them up through training. But we get what he means because in the process of that training, people often or maybe almost always lose a kind of original creativity, a kind of spontaneity, a kind of nature that isn't necessarily in all people, but it might be in some people, and that kind of training can teach it out of you. And some of the most capable creators, whether of art or of scientific explanations, are people who are able to undergo training in a field without losing that originality, without losing that different way of approaching something that isn't taught but might be born in a person, or is just a fresh perspective on something that exists. That passage of Swift's is for me not a perfect analogy, but I liked it anyway. It says something interesting. In this next passage, he's talking about a dynamic that unfolded after the revolution. And first, he's talking about the people who participated in the revolution did not want it to be a precedent. They didn't want future generations to imitate them. But then he talks about a subgroup of some people who had not participated in the riskier parts of the revolution, who got in the king's ear and were telling him that allegiance to the Church of England was a threat to the revolution. And this led to a supporting of the dissenters, who were, of course, opposed to the Church of England and opposing the universities, which were connected to the church, and also teaching the clergy to follow the political doctrine of the divine right of kings, meaning that they should all be loyal to the king as appointed by God, and they should be passive and non-resistant. And it talks about the lending of money at high interest to people around the government in order to tether them to it, and the growth of a stock market that results in, as he puts it, the wealth of the nation that used to be reckoned by the value of land being now computed by the rise and fall of stocks. And he winds up with a criticism of what we would today call stock traders that includes the word cozenage, which is a nice word for deception and trickery. So he's describing in a general sense some of the political action that was taken after the revolution. Swift writes, quote, Most of the nobility and gentry who invited over the Prince of Orange or attended him in his expedition were true lovers of their country and its constitution in church and state, and were brought to yield to those breaches in the succession of the crown out of a regard to the necessity of the kingdom and the safety of the people, which did and could only make them lawful, but without intention of drawing such a practice into precedent or making it a standing measure by which to proceed in all times to come. And therefore we find their counsels ever tended to keep things as much as possible in the old course. But soon after, an underset of men, who had nothing to lose and had neither borne the burden nor heat of the day, found means to whisper in the king's ear that the principles of loyalty in the Church of England were wholly inconsistent with the revolution. Hence began the early practice of caressing the dissenters, reviling the universities as maintainers of arbitrary power, and reproaching the clergy with the doctrines of divine right, passive obedience, and non-resistance. At the same time, in order to fasten wealthy people to the new government, they proposed those pernicious expedients of borrowing money by vast premiums and at exorbitant interest. 
This introduced a number of new dexterous men into business and credit. It was argued that the war could not last above two or three campaigns and that it was easier for the subject to raise a fund for paying interest than to tax them annually to the full expense of the war. Several persons who had smaller encumbered estates sold them and turned their money into those funds to great advantage. Merchants, as well as other moneyed men, finding trade was dangerous, pursued the same method. But the war continuing and growing more expensive, taxes were increased, and funds multiplied every year till they have arrived at the monstrous height we now behold them. And that which was at first a corruption is at last grown necessary. And what every good subject must now fall in with, though he may be allowed to wish it might soon have an end. Because it is with a kingdom, as with a private fortune, where every new encumbrance adds a double weight. By this means, the wealth of the nation, that used to be reckoned by the value of land, is now commuted by the rise and fall of stocks. And though all the interest be duly paid by the public, yet through the contrivance and cunning of stock jobbers, there has been brought in such a complication of knavery and cozenage, such a mystery of iniquity, and such an unintellable jargon of terms to involve it in, as were never known in any other age or country of the world. End quote. In another piece, he gives a description of political lying. He writes, quote, A political lie is sometimes born out of a discarded statesman's head, and thence delivered to be nursed and dandled by the mob. Sometimes it is produced a monster and licked into shape. At other times it comes into the world completely formed and is spoiled in the licking. It is often born an infant in the regular way and requires time to mature it. And often it sees the light in its full growth, but dwindles away by degrees. Sometimes it is of noble birth, and sometimes the spawn of a stock jobber. Here it screams aloud at the opening of the womb, and there it is delivered with a whisper. I know a lie that now disturbs half the kingdom with its noise, which though too proud and great at present to its own parents, I can remember in its whisperhood. To conclude the nativity of this monster, when it comes into the world without a sting, it is stillborn, and whenever it loses its sting, it dies. No wonder if an infant so miraculous in its birth should be destined for great adventures. And accordingly, we see it has been the guardian spirit of a prevailing party for almost 20 years. It can conquer kingdoms without fighting, and sometimes with the loss of a battle. It gives and resumes employments, can sink a mountain to a molehill and raise a molehill to a mountain, has presided for many years at committees of elections, can wash a blackamoor white, make a saint of an atheist and a patriot of a profligate, can furnish foreign ministers with intelligence and raise or let fall the credit of the nation. This goddess flies with a huge looking glass in her hands to dazzle the crowd and make them see according as she turns it their ruin in their interest and their interest in their ruin. End quote. In another passage he writes, quote, I have ever hated all nations, professions, and communities, and all my love is toward individuals. For instance, I hate the tribe of lawyers, but I love counselor such a one and judge such a one. So with physicians, I will not speak of my own trade, soldiers, English, Scotch, French, and the rest. But principally, I hate and detest that animal called man, although I heartily love John, Peter, Thomas, and so forth. This is the system upon which I have governed myself many years, end quote. And Swift had a pretty low opinion of bankers, generally. At one point he writes, quote, Hence the daily increase of bankers, who may be a necessary evil in a trading country, but so ruinous in ours, who, for their private advantage, have sent away all our silver and one-third of our gold. Skipping ahead. 
I have sometimes thought that this paradox of the kingdom's growing rich is chiefly owing to those worthy gentlemen, the bankers, who accept some custom house officers, birds of passage, oppressive thrifty squires, and a few others who shall be nameless, are the only thriving among us. And I have often wished that a law were enacted to hang up half a dozen bankers every year and thereby interpose at least some short delay to the further ruin of Ireland. End quote. And in another spot along similar lines, he writes, quote, I do likewise propose that no money shall be used in Ireland except what is made of leather, which likewise shall be coined in England and imported, and that the taxes shall be levied out of the commodities we export to England, and there turned into money for his majesty's use, and the rents to landlords discharged in the same manner. This will be no manner of grievance, for we already see it very practicable to live without money, and shall be more convinced of it every day. But whether paper shall still continue to supply that defect, or whether we shall hang up all those who profess the trade of bankers, which latter I am rather inclined to, must be left to the consideration of wiser politicians. End quote. In a letter to a young clergyman, he writes, advising him to read old Greek and Roman philosophers, quote, to return then to the heathen philosophers, I hope you will not only give them quarter, but make their works a considerable part of your study. To these I will venture to add the principal orators and historians and perhaps a few of the poets, by the reading of which you will soon discover your mind and thoughts to be enlarged, your imagination extended and refined, your judgment directed, your admiration lessened, and your fortitude increased. End quote. And in this next one, he's talking about how to use old writing, and he wishes that more preachers, more clergy in preparing their sermons would trust their own reason rather than trying to fit a bunch of interesting quotes into it. He writes, quote, I could wish that men of tolerable intellectuals would rather trust their own natural reason, improved by a general conversation with books, to enlarge on a point which they are supposed already to understand. If a rational man reads an excellent author with just application, he shall find himself extremely improved and perhaps insensibly led to imitate that author's perfections, although in a little time he should not remember one word in the book, nor even the subject it handled. For books give the same turn to our thoughts and way of reasoning that good and ill company does to our behavior and conversation, without either loading our memories or making us even sensible of the change, and particularly... I have observed in preaching that no men succeed better than those who trust entirely to the stock or fund of their own reason, advanced indeed, but not overlaid by commerce with books. Whoever only reads in order to transcribe wise and shining remarks, without entering into the genius and spirit of the author, as it is probable he will make no very judicious extract, so he will be apt to trust to that collection in all his compositions, and be misled out of the regular way of thinking in order to introduce those materials which he has been at the pains to gather. And the product of all this will be found a manifest, incoherent piece of patchwork. End quote. And finally, on the topic of preaching, he writes, quote, The two principal branches of preaching are first to tell the people what is their duty, and then to convince them that it is so. End quote. And he's still addressing a young clergyman there, but that's a way to look at almost any kind of persuasive writing or speech. In another passage, he writes, quote, In reason, all government without the consent of the governed is the very definition of slavery. But in fact, eleven men well armed will certainly subdue one single man in his shirt. But I have done, for those who have used to cramp liberty have gone so far as to resent even the liberty of complaining, although a man upon the rack was never known to be refused the liberty of roaring as loud as he thought fit. End quote. In this next passage, he's defending satire as a form, and Swift is, of course, 
known for his satire. He wrote a lot of satire. And here he makes a brief but nice defense of it. He says there's two reasons why people write satire. One is just for their own fun, and the other is with the goal of improving the world somehow. And he said both of these are innocent, but the second one is a better goal. And then he says a line that's worth remembering. Swift writes, quote, There are two ends that men propose in writing satire, one of them less noble than the other, as regarding nothing further than personal satisfaction and pleasure of the writer, but without any view towards personal malice. The other is public spirit, prompting men of genius and virtue to mend the world as far as they are able. And as both these ends are innocent, so the latter is highly commendable. With regard to the former, I demand whether I have not as good a title to laugh as men have to be ridiculous, and to expose vice as another hath to be vicious. If I ridicule the follies and corruptions of a court, a ministry, or a senate, are they not amply paid by pensions, titles, and power, while I expect and desire no other reward than that of laughing with a few friends in a corner? Yet, if those who take offense think me in the wrong, I am ready to change the scene with them whenever they please." End quote. That's a line worth remembering. I demand whether I have not as good a title to laugh as men have to be ridiculous, and to expose vice as another hath to be vicious. In this next one, he's coming to the end of a longer essay about education in general, and he starts out here talking about the need in general for scholarship, for people to learn things beyond what they use in their day-to-day -day lives, and the merits of doing that. And he first answers the question that some might ask of, why should my son, he says, but why should a young person study something or be a scholar if that's not how they're going to make their money? And he says, you might as well ask why they should be honest or good or brave or considerate or whatever if it's not going to help them make money. And this is a question that people raise today about why you should read old books or why you should study certain things or why you should learn broadly if you're not going to make money in that way. This is an excellent answer to that. But that question is also kind of a cop-out. That's what a person who has no interest in knowledge generally uses as an excuse to veil this lack of curiosity about the world with some kind of pragmatism. But Swift says that even those people are not safe from the damage that can be done by a lack of a general knowledge and the moral development that almost inevitably comes with it. Swift writes, Quote, I have engaged myself very unwarily in too copious a subject for so short a paper. The present scope I would aim at is to prove that some proportion of human knowledge appears requisite to those who by their birth or fortune are called to the making of laws and in a subordinate way to the execution of them, and that such knowledge is not to be obtained without a miracle under the frequent, corrupt, and sottish methods of educating those who are born to wealth or titles. For I would have it remembered that I do by no means confine these remarks to young persons of noble birth. The same errors running through all families where there is wealth enough to afford that their sons, at least the eldest, may be good for nothing. Why should my son be a scholar when it is not intended that he should live by his learning? By this rule, if what is commonly said to be true, that money answers all things, why should my son be honest, temperate, just, or charitable, since he has no intention to depend upon any of these qualities for a maintenance? When all is done, perhaps, upon the whole, the matter is not so bad as I would take it, and God, who works good out of evil, acting only by the ordinary course and rule of nature, permits this continual circulation of human things for his own unsearchable ends. The father grows rich by avarice, injustice, oppression. He is a tyrant in the neighborhood over slaves and beggars whom he calls his tenants. 
Why should he desire to have qualities infused into his son which he himself never possessed or knew or found the want of in the acquisition of his wealth? The son, bred in sloth and idleness, becomes a spendthrift, a cully, a profligate, and goes out of the world a beggar, as his father came in. Thus the former is punished for his own sins, as well as for those of the latter. The dunghill, having raised a huge mushroom of short duration, is now spread to enrich other men's lands. It is indeed of worse consequence where noble families are gone to decay because their titles and privileges outlive their estates, and politicians tell us that nothing is more dangerous to the public than a numerous nobility without merit or fortune. But even here God has likewise prescribed some remedy in the order of nature, so many great families coming to an end by the sloth, luxury, and abandoned lusts which enervated their breed through every succession, producing gradually a more effeminate race wholly unfit for propagation. End quote. And this next one, let me just dive in and we'll see what you think of it. Swift writes, quote, I have been assured by a very knowing American of my acquaintance in London that a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is, at a year old, a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled, end quote. And that's a passage from A Modest Proposal in which Swift sarcastically recommends that the poor Irish earn some money by selling their children as food to the rich. And this must have been very startling the first time anyone read it, because he begins with a couple paragraphs that are completely straight-faced, talking about the poverty in Ireland and what best to do about it. And he goes on for a while talking about the different ways that children can be cooked and how much money can be earned from this and what the nutritious value of it is. It's not surprising that he published this anonymously. And then he later voices his actual recommendations for reforms to address the poverty in Ireland. He does this by supposedly mocking these proposals. And he talks about a number of things, but a lot of them have to do with people coming together and, first of all, not spending so much on foreign goods, which are more expensive, buying more things that are domestically manufactured, but also maybe letting go of some luxuries in order to be able to help some of the impoverished in Ireland. He says, don't let anybody talk to me about these things. Quote, let no man talk to me of other expedients, of taxing our absentees at five shillings a pound, of using neither clothes nor household furniture except what is of our own growth and manufacture, of utterly rejecting the materials and instruments that promote foreign luxury, of curing the expensiveness of pride, vanity, idleness, and gaming in our women, of introducing a vein of parsimony, prudence, and temperance, of learning to love our country, wherein we differ even from Laplanders and the inhabitants of Tupamambu, of quitting our animosities and factions, nor acting any longer like the Jews who were murdering one another at the very moment their city was taken, of being a little cautious not to sell our country and consciences for nothing, of teaching landlords to have at least one degree of mercy towards their tenants, lastly of putting a spirit of honesty, industry, and skill into our shopkeepers who, if a resolution could now be taken to buy only our native goods, would immediately unite to cheat and exact upon us in the price, the measure, and the goodness. Nor could ever yet be brought to make one fair proposal of just dealing, though even and earnestly invited to it. Therefore, I repeat, let no man talk to me of these and the like expedients till he hath at least some glimpse of hope that there will ever be some hearty and sincere attempt to put them into practice. End quote. This next passage talks about the police, and Swift mentions the police as something that exists in France, and he has to sort of explain what he means, because presumably... There were no police in 
Ireland and Dublin at the time. And I don't know to what extent there were police in London in the late 17th and early 18th century. And he complains that Dublin needs something like this. It needs some apparatus of the government to not only make the laws, but enforce them. But as we look at how our society got to be where it is today, it's worth it to know something about the history of the police. Because today we imagine that if you didn't have a police force, there would just be mayhem in a town or a city. And that might be more true for some cities than for others. But there was a long period of human history before there was such a thing as the police. And here, in this next passage, Swift is talking about the need for police in Dublin. And who knows exactly what he was imagining. He certainly wasn't thinking of SWAT teams. But he had heard something about what they have in France or Paris. And he thought there should be something like that in Dublin or Dublin could benefit somehow from it. And there is no need to romanticize medieval or early modern era cities. They might have been dangerous by modern standards, or some of them might have been much safer than modern cities. But it's worth acknowledging that we have a general assumption, many people do, that without a police force, everything would just go to pieces. And many of the greatest scientific developments, the greatest art, the greatest writing, was done in places that didn't have a police force. And I point this out not to say that the modern police should be abolished. Again, depending on where you are, you might live in a place like I do where the police don't have very much work to do, or you might live in a place where the police are completely overwhelmed and they have no chance of getting control of the place over which they have jurisdiction. I just want to use this passage to point out that there was a time before cities had police forces, and certainly the modern police force is a late 20th century invention. Swift writes, quote, Nothing is held more commendable in all great cities, especially the metropolis of a kingdom, than what the French call the police, by which word is meant the government thereof to prevent the many disorders occasioned by great numbers of people in carriages, especially through narrow streets. In this government, our famous city of Dublin is said to be very defective and universally complained of. Many wholesome laws have been enacted to correct those abuses, but are ill-executed, and many more are wanting, which I hope the united wisdom of the nation, whereof so many good effects have already appeared this session, will soon take into their profound consideration. End quote. This next one is written in a letter to a woman, and from the letter it seems that Swift had some communication with her husband, and that her husband said that he was very happy with her, but it sounds like she was sort of jealous or something. Swift says something like, you shouldn't worry about things that you're just imagining. But the more important part here is that Swift is writing toward the end of his life, and he is starting to have some health problems. And he's advising her about enjoying life, and never mind not adding to your problems by worrying about things that aren't happening, but even enjoy things that are maybe a little bit unpleasant. Swift writes, quote, the wisest men of all ages have thought it the best course to seize the minutes as they fly and to make every innocent action an amusement. If you knew how I struggle for a little health, what uneasiness I am at in riding and walking and refraining from everything agreeable to my taste, you would think it but a small thing. To take a coach now and then, and to converse with fools or impertinence, to avoid spleen and sickness. Without health, you will lose all desire of drinking your coffee and so low as to have no spirits, end quote. In this next one is a short line that speaks for itself, quote, it is safer for a man's interest to blaspheme God than to be of a party out of power or of even to be thought so, 
end quote. And then toward the end of a collection I was looking at, there was a category called thoughts on various subjects. And this was remarkably similar to a section at the end of the Mencken collection that I looked at last week, where he had a bunch of notes that he had not yet developed into a full piece or even a full thought, really. Here, Swift has a bunch of sentences that are standalone thoughts that probably could have been developed into something longer if he'd had more time, but they're interesting to think about as they are. I picked out some that caught my attention. He writes, quote, The latter part of a wise man's life is taken up in curing the follies, prejudices, and false opinions he had contracted in the former. End quote. So you pull together a bunch of wrong ideas in the first half of your life, and then you spend the second half of your life trying to gradually untangle all of those wrong ideas that you have. And this reminds me of something that Descartes says. He says basically the same thing, that at a certain point, he set to work demolishing his opinions, is the phrase he uses. And it was because he realized that everything that he had thought up to that point was based on nothing in particular. And so he had to go back and start from the beginning and really work through what he thought was true. And Swift didn't spend as much of his life on epistemology as Descartes did. But from this line, it's clear that he had some thoughts about what he was mistaken about in the past and how he had to revisit that and adjust his ideas according to new information. And I think there's no shame in doing that at any age. You don't want to be sliding around based on what's fashionable, certainly. And you also don't want to be somebody who's persuaded by whoever's talking that if somebody says something that's the opposite of what you normally think, that you're just so pulled in by whoever's in front of you that you just agree with them. But if you thought something for a long time, but now you've gotten some new information or somebody's explained it to you in a different way, or you've gradually come to realize that you're mistaken about it, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with revisiting that and maybe completely changing your position. If our worldview is going to reflect the available relevant facts and we get new facts, or even we hear a new argument, then it's not only acceptable if our worldview changes, that is the reasonable action. And along similar lines, he writes, quote, if a man would register all his opinions upon love, politics, religion, learning, etc., beginning from his youth and so go on to old age, what a bundle of inconsistencies and contradictions would appear at last, end quote. So that's similar, that if you were to look at all of your views across your whole lifetime, there would be a lot of inconsistencies. And that's natural and a normal development, but what you want to try to have is that your views are at least consistent at any given moment, that they're consistent with each other right now. And that's difficult enough to do that hardly anybody can do that anyway. So don't worry about whether your views are consistent now with what they were 10 years ago. Swift writes, quote, When a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign that the dunces are all in confederacy against him, end quote. And of course, a dunce could use that argument to say, this is why everybody's against me, is because I'm a genius and everybody else is a dunce. So everybody being against you is not a sign that you're a genius. But the dunces of history do have a bad track record for opposing brilliant new ideas. And here he's talking about different sides in an argument, in a debate, and he makes a comparison to warfare. He writes, quote, it is in disputes as in armies, where the weaker side sets up false lights and makes a great noise to make the enemy believe them more numerous and strong than they really are, end quote. So in war, something that the weaker side will sometimes do is create the illusion that they're bigger than they are. They'll set a bunch of fake campfires. They're real campfires, but they don't have soldiers around them. 
or they'll make a bunch of noise to make it seem like there are more soldiers than there are, so that the other side is frightened, or maybe they decide not to engage because they think the force is bigger than it is. And he's saying that in debates, he says disputes, the weaker side does the same thing. It tries to appeal to having many people on its side. That's not an argument. The best argument might be held by only one person. The question is, is the argument valid or not? And almost everybody might be unanimous in a bad argument. This is a fact about truth that it's not democratic. Truth is not determined by a vote. It's determined by what's true. And we can argue about how you determine truth. But voting is not it. It's entirely possible for an entire group of people to vote unanimously in favor of a falsehood. But Swift is saying that the weaker side in an argument might try to appeal to the notion that it has a bigger force. It has more people on its side than it actually does. He writes, quote, Some men, under the notions of weeding out prejudices, eradicate virtue, honesty, and religion. End quote. It is eerie that he wrote that sometime in the early 18th century. Since Swift as a satirist got a fair amount of heat both from the public and, as we saw, sometimes from the monarch, he had some thoughts about dealing with the opposition of the crowd. We've looked at a couple of those already, but here's another one. He says, quote, There are but three ways for a man to revenge himself of the censure of the world, to despise it, to return the like, or to endeavor to live so as to avoid it. The first of these is usually pretended. The last is almost impossible. The universal practice is for the second, end quote. And there he says censure, which is severe disapproval, not censor like censorship. But he says there's three ways to approach it. You can despise it, you can return it, or you can try to live as to avoid it. And he says, the first is usually pretended. So people usually pretend to despise disapproval, to be indifferent to it. And he says, the last, that is endeavoring to live so as to avoid disapproval, to try to live so that nobody disapproves of what you do, that's almost impossible. He says, the universal practice is the second, that is to return the like. So if people disapprove of you, you disapprove of them. That's fair advice from a guy who got a lot of disapproval for his writing and his thoughts in his lifetime. And this next one is a little inspiring to give yourself a little more credit than maybe you do. Swift writes, quote, Although men are accused for not knowing their own weakness, yet perhaps as few know their own strength. It is, in men as in soils, where sometimes there is a vein of gold which the owner knows not of, end quote. So not only do we not know our own weakness, but we also don't know our strength. And just as there might be a vein of gold in a piece of land that the owner of the gold doesn't know anything about, there might be a vein of gold in you that you don't know about yet. So maybe you ought to dig for it. He writes, quote, If books and laws continue to increase as they have done for 50 years past, I am in some concern for future ages how any man will be learned or any man a lawyer, end quote. And he might mean that on either of two levels. One is that there's a passage, I think, of Washington Irving, where somewhere he's worrying about how in the future people won't even have time to read all the summaries of books. And he was talking about some kind of book that existed at the time that was what we might today call a book of abstracts, that it was summaries of a bunch of books. So instead of reading the whole book, you could read a summary to go see if you wanted to read the whole thing. And he was worried that in the future, there would be so many books that people wouldn't even have time to read the summaries of all the books that are available, which is now the case. There are between 500,000 and a million books published each year, and that's not including self-published books. I couldn't tell if that was only published in English or if that's published worldwide. 
But I did a calculation once that if you read a book a week for 50 years, which is a breakneck speed, I try to do a book a week now, and it sometimes feels like it's too fast. If I didn't have to do all this other recording stuff, it might be a little bit easier. But still, anybody reading faster than a book a week, I'm a little bit suspicious of them. And I'm even a little bit suspicious of myself. I sometimes feel that I don't get everything that I could out of these books. But unless you have a job where you're reading 10 hours a day, whatever you want, I really don't think you can process much more than a book a week. But if you do that for 50 years, you read about 2,500 books, which on the one hand sounds like a lot, but when you compare it to 500 to a million books published a year, it means that if you dedicate a lot of your life to reading, to acquiring new knowledge in that way, it's not the only way to acquire knowledge, but it's a good way you still have to be extremely selective in what you read because there's no way in thousands of lifetimes for you to get to everything. And even if you cut out of those figures all of the low-quality fiction that's being written, all of the low-quality nonfiction that's being written, and you really just kept to the more valuable books that you could really genuinely learn something from, you still wouldn't be able to possibly keep up with everything. But so is that what Swift and... Washington Irving were worried about that a learned man is somebody who is familiar with basically all the books, roughly, or at least all of the authors. And as the number of books and authors expands, our ability to read those books and authors remains fixed. We have a set amount of time and energy that we can spend reading. And so we will be familiar with an increasingly small portion of what's available. So was that what they were worried about? Maybe. That this notion of a shared knowledge, a collection of writing, a canon that educated people are all familiar with and we all agree about what's in the canon and what's not, that will become watered down and there won't be such a thing as a learned man because there won't be an agreed upon reading list of what that learned man should be familiar with. That might be what they were worried about, but I think they might have been thinking more about how the increasing ease of publication, things becoming easier to publish, will mean a watering down of general knowledge and the quality of literature. And I think Swift would have had a pretty refined view of this problem because he wrote this thing called The Battle of the Books, which was a fictional story of a battle between the authors, basically, of ancient books. On the one side are the ancients, and on the other side are the moderns. And what's interesting about it is that the people that he lists in the moderns are now considered ancient for many people. He talks about Tasso, Milton, Dryden, Descartes, Hobbes, I think William Cowper is in there somewhere. And under the ancients, he lists people you would think of, Herodotus, Homer, Livy, Hippocrates, Euclid, Virgil, Plato, Aristotle. And so he was familiar with this tension between valuing old books and also making room for new writers in what's considered the canon. So he probably wasn't just worrying that new books will confuse people and they ought to just read old stuff. But if we take a wider view of this problem and say that the digital age has made it easier not only for people to publish books, but for people to publicize anything, that on Twitter you can talk about what you ate for breakfast and whatever, and this can get control of people's attention to the detriment of the elevation of people's minds. Part of the reason I make this podcast is because I have gotten tremendous value out of getting off of social media. I was never really into social media, but I'm now pretty much nowhere except I have a couple accounts for my publishing company with which I haven't really done much yet. But I don't have any personal accounts, and I do my best to not browse the internet in an open-ended way, look at news websites, things like that. And instead, I use that time to read books, 
not only the books we talk about on this podcast, but other books as well. And I've gotten tremendous value out of this, not only in terms of the knowledge that I've gained, the things that I learned from reading these books and the way that my vision of history and of the world has expanded and I think become more accurate, but also in terms of how I feel on a day-to-day basis by not getting pulled into the stupid news of what's going on today and what people are supposed to be mad about. This deliberate redirecting of my attention from something that takes up hours of time per day, if you're not careful, and can suck up your personality, really, and redirecting all of that attentional energy consciously to things that I do want to learn about, that I care about, that I value. This has been immensely valuable to me, and I want to spread the good word to encourage anybody who might be receptive to making a similar kind of change to do the same, because we wish that it were only low-quality books that were taking away people's attention from higher-quality ones. But it's not even books. It's dumb social media accounts. And it's not even Twitter. Twitter, at least, is something that you're often reading, though it doesn't really count. It's visual platforms like TikTok and Instagram. These are what is pulling people's attention away from becoming learned. And this is not something that you ought to do because some big fourth-grade teacher in the sky is wagging their finger at you. It will objectively make you feel better. I submit. And so if we look at this passing thought of Swift's from probably over 300 years ago, I don't know exactly when he wrote this line, it has an interesting echo. Let's hear it again. Quote, if books and laws continue to increase as they have done for 50 years past, I am in some concern for future ages how any man will be learned or any man a lawyer, end quote. And we didn't even talk about the lawyer aspect of that, but that's a whole separate thing. Swift writes, Quote, most sorts of diversion in men, children, and other animals is an imitation of fighting, end quote. And the first category of example that comes to mind is how you see cats play fight or dogs, or in documentaries you see lion cubs doing the same thing, and of course, children roughhouse and wrestle. But this is also true of chess, of playing cards, of playing a sport, even debate, A conversation about a particular topic has a combative aspect to it. Hopefully it's not only about the fight, but is also about taking some small step toward a clear image of what is true. But if you say something and then somebody says something that directly opposes it, then now you have to answer it either by accepting that they're right and you're wrong or by defending what you said before. And now you're in a kind of a contest where if you successfully show that what they said is wrong then now they have to accept that and neither side wants to do that. And so it becomes a small competition, a small fight within this conversation. And another clear modern example of this is that most video games you can think of involve fighting of some kind. And Swift doesn't draw any conclusion from this connection between diversion, that is entertainment, and fighting. But it's worth noticing because in an existential sense, we also can feel ourselves come into focus when we perceive that we're fighting against something, whether an abstraction or a group. That's something that is, for better or worse, spiritually energizing. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that principle by itself. It matters who or what you're fighting and for what reason. But the observation that entertainment often has to do with fighting and the perception of a fight is entertaining, we can just notice that fact about life and do with it what we will. Swift writes, quote, very few men properly speaking, live at present, but are providing to live another time, end quote. And this one caught my attention because it's a very Zen idea, 
or it's a kind of idea I would normally associate with Zen. But I could see no indication that Swift would have had any knowledge of that tradition beyond maybe having heard of some kind of Japanese East Asian religious practice. But this is a notion that appears in the lectures of somebody like Alan Watts, who's a British guy who died, I think, in the 70s. And he was one of the people who brought Zen and Eastern religion to the West. And he has some interesting lectures on YouTube that a friend and I liked listening to in like 2009. And I hadn't been back to them for a long time. And when I checked them out recently, I typed Alan Watts into YouTube. They had all these overproduced video clips overlaid on the lectures and there was an echo added and there's music and back when we were listening to them it was just the lecture and alan watts i think is still useful in certain ways he has his limitations but his message is very peaceful and relaxing but also entertaining and interesting he was very knowledgeable and if you want to look this guy up like i said it's alan watts w-a-t-t-s alan a-l-a-n it's not alan watt singular who is somebody else but anyway one of the ideas that he talks about is exactly what Swift is articulating here in a single sentence, which is that people are always preparing for the future. They're pulling together money, they're getting things straightened out, they're doing whatever so that someday they can just enjoy the moment that they're in. Whereas there's a straight route to enjoying the moment that you're in, which is just by doing it right now, just by noticing where you are and what you can hear and what your body feels like, and what your breath feels like, and what you can see around you, and enjoying that for what it is right now. And knowing how to enjoy a moment, being able to enjoy a moment, having that habit of mind of being present where you are, and noticing what's going on around you, and noticing the suchness of it, noticing how grassy the grass is, and how breezy the breeze is, just noticing it as having the qualities that it has. This is a separate skill or habit from organizing your life. Keeping your finances in order, keeping your health in order, keeping your relationships in order, these are necessary. But knowing how to be in a moment is a separate thing. So you could do all of those other things. And when you've got your dream job or whatever it is, you still aren't able to enjoy that moment because you haven't learned how to do that. It's a different thing. And so then you'll just be rushing on to the next thing. You'll be setting some other future goal, if you're that kind of person. And it's always worthwhile to be working toward goals. I would never tell anybody not to do that. But along the way, you have to also be enjoying the substance of your life, what your life actually is. Because a lot of what people spend their time on is something to give themselves permission to enjoy some moment in the future. They want to set up a certain kind of moment in a certain kind of house with a certain kind of job and a certain kind of whatever. So they can say, now I have permission to enjoy this moment. But really that moment is not going to be foundationally different from this one. To go from having bills that you can't pay to mostly not having bills that you can't pay, meaning mostly being able to meet your expenses, is a worthwhile change to try to make. Though I would say it involves cutting expenses as often as it means trying to increase your income. People like to think about the second one more than the first. And going from being in poor health to being in good health, whether overcoming a sickness or losing weight or quitting some bad habit, big structural things like that are worth working toward. But you want to be careful about spending too much time preparing for some imaginary future moment that you think is going to be paradise, and then missing all of the moments along the way that comprise your actual life. So again, Swift wrote, quote, very few men 
properly speaking, live at present, but are providing to live another time, end quote. Those are the passages that I want to show you from Jonathan Swift. And Swift is a little bit difficult to read because he's often writing about something very contextual. He's writing about the politics of the time. He's writing about the people of the time. He's making a subtle criticism of something that's got references in it that are hard to pick up without that context, without knowing who he's winking at or who he's referencing with a certain phrase. And on the one hand, we can take this as an example of how the more fashionable something is when it's produced, the shorter a shelf life it has. And that's a strange comment to make about somebody who's writing your reading 300 years after it was written. But Swift is sometimes a little bit harder to apply to our own lives than, say, Descartes is or philosophers who write about abstractions and about the general components of life. Because Swift was so involved in commenting on and criticizing and trying to shape the politics of his time. But one thing we can remember him as is a 17th and 18th century writer who pushed on the barriers of what was considered widely acceptable at that time. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, I hope you'll send it to a thoughtful friend who you think will benefit from it and go over to my website, volrathpublishing.com. The link is in the description and pick up a copy of the edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that I have printed. I have it with free shipping at a good price, original cover art, and 97 footnotes throughout the book that explain some of the historical, literary, geographical references that Mary Shelley uses, some of the more unusual vocabulary words. I basically put in footnotes for anything that I had a hard time understanding when I was reading it and that I had to go look up separately. Frankenstein is at least as relevant today as it was when it was first published over 200 years ago. It is a forceful warning about the destructive power of technology, about how easy it might be for us to build something that could destroy us. It's one of those books that I think everybody should read. It's excellent both if you're used to reading old books, but also if you're not, but you want to start with something that's certainly not simple, but it's pretty much action from start to finish. And my goal in preparing my edition was to make something that I would be glad to have on my shelf. And the edition of Frankenstein that I have in my library is the edition that I printed. So I was able to do that. And I'm sure that this will make an excellent addition to your library. So I hope you will go over there and order yourself a copy today. Farewell until next time. Take care and happy reading.